Today's sermon text is Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So I have a theological question for you. It's it's kind of a theological question. but uh, Do you think Jesus was a foodie? I mean, was he, was he really into food? I mean, there can be an argument made, you know, because you think of the scriptures that they thought he was a glutton. They said he was a glutton, that he was a wine bibber, that he dipped into the wine quite a bit. Uh, Jesus himself said that the Son of Man has come eating and drinking and it is a question about the nature of food in Jesus. It, it sets up well, of course, the sermon series we're beginning, which is Dining with Jesus. The idea is not original to me, uh, but it's helpful in seeing the kingdom of God and seeing the ministry of our Lord uh, through Jesus and his eating with people. You know, in the Gospel of Luke, you might be surprised on close to a dozen different occasions, Jesus is eating with people and ministering. In fact, one author said that when you read the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is either going to a meal, he's at a meal, or he's leaving a meal. Another author said he literally eats his way through the Gospel of Luke. Now, this shouldn't be super surprising for us, For food is significant in Scripture. I mean, when God created all things, he created all the trees of the garden for what? For food. So at the very beginning, God is concerned with food. And then you see the fall of men and women is through the context of food, right? It was the fruit through which they desired and fell. And then you see, of course, Jesus in choosing to visually display his greatest act in terms of sacrificing himself on the cross, what do we see it through? The lens of food, right? Bread and wine. And how about the final supper, the marriage feast? It's got food. So so here what you have is food runs through scripture. And and we see this kind of um, ministry. So food begins to be more. It begins to almost picture a new world that Jesus is bringing to bear. And I'm glad because a lot of our lives revolve around food. We're always at the table. We're always eating. I I can't tell you how many conversations Carol and I have had around our kitchen table with different souls in this church, praying or laughing, crying or admonishing, or encouraging. So much of life, so much of our friendship and our companionship, our knowledge of each other is around food. I mean, the very word companion, it's made up of two Latin words, with bread. So our companionship 
is around a meal. So I want to look at this series and see these different contexts of Jesus eating with people so that we can better understand Christ and his glorious kingdom. The banquet we're looking at today uh, that was read for you uh, speaks to the incredible nature of God's kingdom. I mean, the radical nature, not just of its participants, you know, Levi, uh, but, but also the salvation that he brings to Levi and the call upon Levi to go into the world. So it's a beautiful picture. It's going to challenge conventional faith. It'll challenge conventional thinking with religion. So I want to give you four ideas to consider. First, you see that the kingdom of God is for sinners. I know you know that cognitively, but hopefully we're going to see it a little bit more intimately. It's the kingdom is for sinners. Look with me at 27. In 2070, he says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. <clears throat> if I bust into Levi periodically, you just have to forgive me. I know a Levi better than I know a Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. Now, after this, obviously it begs us to answer the question, well, after what? Well, after what? Well, it was after the healing of the paralytic. So the passage right before ours, Jesus heals that man, right? He's paralyzed. He can't walk. His friends bring him to Jesus, lower him through the roof. The first thing Jesus says is what? He doesn't say you're healed. Get up and walk. He says you're forgiven. Now that would have shocked everybody. Hey, you missing something, Jesus? The guy can't walk, and you're worried about his forgiveness. But what Jesus is doing is he's challenging everybody to what they think the Messiah is going to do. The Messiah is not going to come fix all your problems right now. His ultimate goal and greater goal is to bring forgiveness to the sins of men and women so that we can be reconciled to God. Think we can be with God again. Just as we were created to be with God, we fell from fellowship He's bringing us back into fellowship with God through the forgiveness of sins. But they were shocked by that. The only reason that he healed the man was to prove that he had authority to forgive. So that would have shocked them. But now what's secondarily shocking is this call of Levi. Why? What's so shocking about Jesus calling Levi? Well, he was a tax collector. Now, folks, we don't like taxes. We don't like them now. They didn't like tax collectors then. But it's even more, the tax collector then was a hated man. Why? Well, he was a Jewish man that would set up a tax booth along a trade route so that goods coming and going would be levied. They'd be taxed. Uh, there were taxes on docking fees and, and material goods coming through the port. There was a cart tax. Each wheel would be taxed. Everything was taxed. The money was, of course, going to fuel the Roman army machine. You know, Rome was dominating Israel at the time. The money would go. Now, here's what the Romans would do. To increase efficiency in tax collection, they would, they would auction off the right to charge taxes. It was called tax farming. They would auction that right off. They would pay, and the Romans would say, this is what you need to raise. Now, anything above it is yours to keep. Well, you can just imagine with poor record-keeping, poor communication, you know, it was open to abuse. If all my commission came from what I overcharged, the tendency is I'm going to be charging over and, and I'm going to be padding my pockets. So they were hated. Why? Well, they were, of course, traitors. They were supporting the Roman government. They were hated by the people because they were cheats. They were padding their own pockets off of your profits. And they were hated because they were an apostate. 
I mean, here they were serving the Roman government that was in God's land over God's people. So tax collectors, they couldn't testify in court. Their testimony wasn't to be believed. They were excommunicated from the synagogue. They were classed with murderers, with adulterers, with prostitutes. They were hated. So here, the shocking news here is that Jesus called Levi. He was the least acceptable candidate for discipleship in the coming kingdom of God. It would have flabbergasted people. You can't believe it. You've got to understand, it would be like the, the French collaborators with the Germans during World War II. Do you know what happened to them? They're like, they were hated. They were never forgiven. And he calls Levi. Why? Well, I, th I think first, Levi, the calling of Levi uh, shows us that even the wickedest of sinners are targets of God's mercy. I, I mean, does it not shock you? I, I mean, you almost have to re-familiarize yourself with the story. It, it should shock you that, that he would, I mean, think about Jesus coming and hanging around prostitutes, tax collectors, liars, perjurers. That's who he made his company with. He was coming to call them. You know, we have trouble not thinking that people should be a certain level of worthiness before they come in the kingdom. And we see this is blasted out of here. I mean, Paul picks up this idea when he writes to Timothy, and he goes into kind of a personal testimony in chapter 1 of his first letter. He says, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. So Paul is saying, he came into the world to save people like me. I'm the worst. He says, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul sees himself, his life was a train wreck, and yet God saved him. So that those of us who follow Paul might look back and say, you know what? He was a scoundrel, and yet God was merciful to him. He can be merciful to me. Does this change your view of God? I mean, does this change your view of Christ? So many of us, we kind of put God in that role of taskmaster, kind of keeping track of everything you do wrong. And until you start getting some of those things written off, he's not even going to look at you with favor. Does this change your view? I hope it does. It's intended to. Do you see the mercy of God? If you're right now thinking, yeah, but Tom, you don't know what I've done. I could put you up against Levi. I mean, it'd be a good race. If you're thinking he could never forgive me, this calling of Levi is to give you, you in this room right here, those of you who aren't really sure if he can forgive you, it's to give you hope. Yes, he can. Yes, he can forgive me. Yes, I can be a disciple. I, I, I bid you, don't neglect the mercy of God. I, this is for us. Don't neglect his kindness to you right now. If you feel pressed on your soul, that you think you're kind of out of his realm of those who he would look for, you're right in it because this is the story. But, but secondly, the calling of Levi also shows us that salvation is by his sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. You notice it's Jesus who says, you follow me. 
You know, you, you, you want to think that salvation comes and this call of, of God through his son comes once you've attained a certain spiritual progress and list of accomplishments and betterments. Levi is a living example that salvation is by grace alone. It's based on the sheer goodness of God's mercy, not on what you might be or not on what you hope to be. You know, there's, there's like, you know, you're living your life, but in the background, there's always that thing running. God really does help those who help themselves. God really does look more favorably on us when I'm really doing it as I'm supposed to be doing it. I don't want to discourage holiness in the pursuit of it. But, but in terms of salvation, it's rooted in the sheer mercy of God alone, not what you've done. or what you, you know, every person that comes into this church as a member, I ask the same question to. And the question is this. Do you acknowledge yourselves as sinners in the sight of God justly deserving his displeasure and without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. And if you don't believe that, then you don't understand a gospel of grace. John Calvin, the great reformer, said this about the calling of Matthew. He said, uh, Levi and Matthew are the same. Levi, of course, is the Jewish name given, uh, called Matthew, also the writer of the first gospel. He says that Matthew from his tax office should have been received into Christ's fellowship. Yes, even called to the office of an apostle is an illustrious example for us of the grace of God. It was Christ's will not only to choose simple men for that rank, but to bring down the world's wisdom, but also this tax officer who had followed a career of small credit, which had which had involved him in a great many corrupt deeds to make him an instance of his free goodness and in his person to teach that the calling of us depends not on the merits of our own righteousness, but on his sheer mercy. Christian, do you understand this? That the calling of Levi is to remind us that your walking in grace is by his sheer mercy. It's by his sheer generosity not rooted in anything we've done or anything that we've become or anything that we hope to become. Now, I desire for all of us to incrementally move from glory to glory to glory all the way till we see him. Uh, but, but the call that he has placed upon the... If you're a Christian here today, it's by the sheer mercy of God that he has saved you a sinner. No different than he saved Levi. That's why we want to come to him, even with our sins. So many of us think, well, I'm going to come to him, but I got to, do, I got to get a couple things straight, Tom, before I come to Jesus. You know, we're going to sing a song at the end of the service, Come Ye Sinners. He says, in the song, it says, if you tarry till you're better, you'll never come at all. It's not, it's not of kind of a you doing some of the cleanup work, and then he comes and finishes it for you. God's not a co-pilot that way. No, God will save you through and through. Beginning, middle, and end. That's the first thing. That the kingdom of God is for sinners. Secondly, we see that the kingdom of God is a call to actually follow Jesus. Now look with me at 28. 28, he says, And he said to him, Follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. Now, we don't know. We don't know exactly what 
Levi knew about Jesus? We can assume he had heard him teach. They both were from Capernaum. We would have assumed that he would have known about these miracles. They would have been all over town. You can just imagine he's sitting at a tax booth right in the middle of town, so he would know what was going on. But, but I, think, I think Luke uh, intentionally leaves little details so that we look at the call of Jesus. Not so much, not so much Levi, but Jesus. Jesus said, follow me. And what's it do? And he got up and left everything. It was dramatic. It was sudden. Luke is trying to get us to see the call of Jesus is that kind of power. You know, it's like I'm leaving everything. And he did. He got up, left his tax booth. That's not to say he didn't go back and get his affairs in order to follow Jesus. It's speaking about this decisive act to leave his job, to leave his money, to leave his position, to leave his future hope. He left it all. But he left more than that. He left a lifestyle of, of ungodliness, cheating, lying, thievery. He left it all. It, it, it was, it, it's, think about it for a minute. It's like he died. And he was born again. That's why in Scripture you see conversions in a death and life picture. It, it's no different than when Jesus called Lazarus. He said, come out. He was dead and now he's alive. It's the same thing here on a spiritual level. Follow me. And he gets up and follows him. That's the call of Jesus, to follow him. And he gives that power to do that. So, so when, you, when you come to understand that the kingdom of God is for sinners, it, the kingdom of God is for sinners who are now following him. So the call is to follow. So, uh, so are you a Christian by what you believe? Are you a Christian because of what you believe or because of what you do? I'm not trying to set up a false dichotomy here. I want you to think. I want you to think that, that many people believe, but they don't follow. That's not being a Christian. It, it's calling to believe. Doctrine is essential. It's vital. But that doctrine has to give way to, to following him, that our lives are changed. What have you left in your following him? What have you died to? What behaviors, habits? What reflects the, the actual following of Jesus in your life? Look in your relationships. Look in your marriage. Look in your, your friendships. Look at how you handle money. Look at how you handle entertainment. Look at how you handle your, your relationships at work. What has changed? How have the words of Jesus or his priorities, how have they affected you so that you do things different than before you were following him? You know, Jesus says in John 10, my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. So, so they do what I do. Increasingly so. You know, back, <clears throat> I don't know how many years ago, it was a WWJD brace. So what would Jesus do? I guess it was a good reminder, kind of, you know, we can commercialize everything, folks, right? So we put a bracelet on there, a simple call, follow. We could ask, what did he do, actually? And let's go do it. You know, Jesus said, if you hear my words and don't do them, you're like the man who builds his house on the sand when the storms come, boom, it's gone. Uh, those who hear my words and do them, he's like a man who builds his house on the rock, that when the storms come, it, it stays fixed and firm. So, so to what degree are you following him? Now, uh, let me remind you, the call to follow, it isn't uniform. It doesn't all look like Levi. I, I mean, uh, uh, James and John and Peter do, but Nicodemus didn't. I mean, Nicodemus was called in John chapter 3, but it didn't come till the end. So it was delayed. He ultimately came. 
So if you don't have one of these testimonies of, you know, dark to light or a hell's angels testimony, I was a murderer, drunkard, drunkard and, and now I, you know, the, the, those get the crowds all whipped up. But, but it doesn't have to be that way. Some of you were raised in Christian homes and you came to faith at a young age and you've lived a godly lifestyle. Praise God for that. But you still want to see the fruit that comes from following Jesus. So it doesn't, really have, it doesn't always have to look like Levi's, this, this death to life. It, it can look more incremental. Mine was a little more stark. But my children, they weren't. It was more incremental for them. But do you see the fruit in your life now? Folks, the, the reason that we know we're a Christian is because we're following him, not because you have a date in your Bible when you prayed. No, no, no. It's by the fruit that's being born right now. Do you love Christ now? Do you love his church? You know, it, it's hard to think, yeah, I love Jesus, I don't love his church. I'm like, well, how can you love Jesus and hate his bride? I mean, do you know what that would do to a relationship? Yeah, I love you, but your wife, not really big on her. You know, that wouldn't bode well for the relationship. Do you love his word? Do you long to see him? Do you think more on heaven as you get older? I mean, these are some of the evidences. You know, do, do you hate the sin that you do? Do you find yourself repenting quicker? Those are evidences that I'm following him. And then I would also say this call to follow is also, it's also the giving of a new identity to you. You know, in this culture right now, we are very confused over identity, primarily gender identity. But really before that, we've always struggled with identity. Uh, we, we often identify ourselves as being successful in business or being wealthy or intelligent or beautiful or successful. We want to root our identity in everything but God because it's measurable. But let me tell you, any idea rooted in anything other than God is temporal. It's going to fade away. I mean, they, it all stops at the door called death. And yet he gives us a new identity here as a child of God. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a member of his God's kingdom. It's a different identity. Uh, please don't undervalue that. The call this kingdom calls sinners to follow. Thirdly, you see the kingdom is a point of great celebration. Look with me at 29. In 29, it says, And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And you can imagine, look at Levi here. He's throwing his own party. He's not regretting, hey, giving up the job and giving up the wealth and the giving up the security. You don't see him regretting it. You don't see him kind of hanging, I got to change my life now and follow Jesus. He's not doing any of that stuff. He is happy throwing a party. Why is he so happy? Well, he's happy because here he is. He knew what he was doing was wrong. All of us have God's law written on our souls. We know when we stray. You know when you begin to err. And granted, if you keep walking in the same way, you can harden your soul and not see sin as you once did. But we all know, even the little child, you know, when it does something he or she's not supposed to do, they look back. I mean, they, they know. They know. We know. He knows that he has been forgiven. 
He's been accepted by God. His burden of sin, all the stuff he did for all those years, it's been lifted off. The distance that he always felt with God that we feel, you know, when you're awash in sin, you feel like, I, I, gotta, I gotta read my Bible before I go back to him. You know, we, we make all these efforts to kind of clean ourselves up before we go back because we feel the distance. We feel the alienation. We know we're out of sync with him. It's like in a relationship when you're out of sync with your spouse or a friend. It's awkward, you know, you're not doing the dance right. And here he is. He feels relieved. It's like John Bunyan when the, when the boulder of sin fell off his shoulders. And now he can stand up again. I'm forgiven. I'm adopted. Am I perfect? No, but I am forgiven. And that's what he's excited about. And that's what prompts him. You know, that is what excites him. Now think about what excites us in this world. Oftentimes it's of a temporal nature. You know, when J.C. Ryle wrote his commentary on this passage, he was an Anglican bishop in the 19th century, he said it's far more important event for Levi than being married or coming of age or being made a nobleman or receiving a great fortune. It is the birth of an immortal soul. It's the rescue of a sinner from hell. It's a passage from life to death. It's being made a king and a priest forevermore. It's being provided for both in time and eternity. It's adoption to the noblest and richest of all families, the very family of God. So that's why he's rejoicing. I mean, think about it. To be forgiven by God, to be cleansed of your sins, to be reconciled, to be brought back as a son or a daughter. That's why he invites his friends. Notice who his party goers are. It says tax collectors and others. Who are the others? Well, they were other sinners is what they were. That's what we see in the Pharisees in a few verses. They're other sinners. They're other, they're other degenerates of society, moral outcasts, adulterers, prostitutes, blah, blah, blah. All those people that we religious folks don't like to hang around. And there he is eating and drinking with them. He's, he's, he's enjoying them. They're enjoying him. Levi has asked them to come so that they might meet the one that has meant so much to him. They want to share Jesus with other people. They want him, Levi wants him to tell them about what has given him such freedom that they might also find the same freedom. Uh, Levi doesn't want to have Jesus just to himself. He he wants to share him. Ryle later in his commentary says, a converted man doesn't want to go to heaven alone. He wants his friends to come with him. And so he invites his friends here. He's rejoicing. And out of his joy, he wants others to know. To what degree do you sense joy from the gospel? Now, some of you have been in the faith a long time. It's become familiar to you. It makes sense to you. We almost need to kind of almost use smelling salts to bring us to that sense of what he really has done for us. He saved us. To what degree do you rejoice in this? How often do you think about it? How often do you? Carol will often say to me, you're not the man I married. You're not the man I married. And just reminding us, this is what God did. I mean, it's a stark difference. To how often do you think back where you were and where you would be? We often say, where would we be if he didn't wake us up? Probably divorced, probably broken as people. Where would we be? We need, you know, John, John Newton, the great uh, writer, 
of amazing grace. He, he never forgot that sense of where I was and where I am. In, in fact, he, on his tombstone, he had these words inscribed, John Newton, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was, by the rich mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy. He wanted that to be known. I'm not forgetting where I came from. I am so thankful and so happy. Folks, we are the only ones that be, should be full of joy. The Christian, the one who's been reconciled. It's better than becoming a nobleman. It's better than becoming married. It's better than becoming coming of age, receiving some accolades. You know, we rejoice over those things, and many of those things are gifts of God, and I want you to rejoice over them. But they are just examples to you of the graciousness of a God who has even gone so far to save us. So, so our faith, the evidence of following Jesus, should be a measure of joy. Now, I recognize some of you are just naturally giddy, and some of you may be more naturally inclined to be a little um, melancholic. And so our temperaments are different. It's going to look different. That's fine. But that inner joy of, I have been reconciled to God, that should never leave. If that is waning with you, I want you to come forward at some point, talk to an elder or a member of this church, and ask them to pray for you. Because we want to remind ourselves of the incredible. Heaven's rejoicing, that's what Jesus said. The angels rejoice when one sinner repents. That's why Levi was rejoicing. Heaven was rejoicing. Earth should be too. So the kingdom is a point of great celebration. I, I hope you look. If you have no joy, then there is something wrong. And we, I want to talk to you. We want to talk to you. Because there should be a profound joy, even in the midst of hardship. Again, I'm not talking about a giddiness. I'm talking about a rock solid. I'm good with the one who is giving me breath right now and the one with whom I need to give me breath tomorrow when I wake up. Okay, the fourth thing is that the kingdom of God uh, challenges conventional religion. It challenges conventional faith. Okay, how so? Look with me at 30 to 32. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance." This is such an incredible... Let, let me set the scene for you. So, so you see Jesus is reclining at this table. So he's drinking wine, he's eating food, he's rejoicing with these sinners, he's talking to them. I imagine, as I said, as the work of the Messiah is sharing the kingdom, he's getting to know them, they're getting to know him. And then these Pharisees and religious folk come alongside. They don't enter, now they don't, and I'll explain why they don't, but they don't enter into that room. They stand outside and they complain about Jesus to the disciples. Boy, is that not us or what? I'm going to criticize everybody to somebody else. You know. But that's what they're doing. They're criticizing Jesus to somebody else. And of course, now I want to explain why. Now, the word Pharisee actually means to separate. And, and it explains that they saw holiness by virtue of their separation. So if they stay away from those who are stained with sin, I won't be stained. We have the same expressions. We have the same thought. Birds of a feather flock together. One bad apple. 
It spoils the whole bunch. I could break into Michael Jackson right now, but I won't. One bad apple, it can spoil the whole bunch. One rotten apple can ruin the barrel. And so what do we do? We stay away. And that's what the Pharisees were doing. They were trying to be holy, but they, they thought that holiness would come by separation. Now, this was a problem for a couple of reasons. Number one, in thinking that way, you begin to create distinctions with people. Sinner, righteous, good, bad, evil, virtuous. You begin to create distinctions within people. We, them. But, but here's what's worse. You're blind to your own stain that is already in you and is part of you. You begin to think of sin as simply outward behaviors that you are to avoid rather than the inward stuff that we have to deal with. And so Jesus, in kindness, rebukes them and challenges them and challenges their superficial view of sin, and he challenges them with his purpose in coming. That's why he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Do you see the irony? He's not saying the Pharisees are righteous and they don't need it. He's saying none are righteous. That's the irony. The irony is that those you're looking at that are celebrating, that are in the party, they understand their sickness. And that's why they've come to me. I've come to them to call them to repentance. The, the, the irony is that they're not at the party. They're like the older brother. They're outside, think, sitting in their own righteousness. They don't see themselves as sick. Oh, do, do you see what's happening here? They have been blind to their own sin. They've seen sin as this outward behavior. They've avoided many of those behaviors, thinking themselves good. Now listen, when you guys are feeling great, you're never thinking of calling the doctor. You never worry about the doctor. You don't even think about that because you're too healthy. It's only when you begin to see the sickness that you immediately run. Think how fast when you feel sick and you begin to feel bad, you immediately call the doctor. Go right to him. I, I want to get better. All of us are that way. Nobody's usually languishing in pain without calling they didn't see it. That's the tragedy. The religious don't see their need for true religion. So, so what do we see here? Well, clearly he is warning us of self-righteousness. If someone were to ask you, are you a good person? What would you say? Would you say, and maybe not what you would say, what would you think? Would you think, yeah, I'm a pretty good person? And how would you evaluate that goodness? Would it be rooted somehow in the change in your life or that, that you're not doing what you once did? Do you see that the greatest threat from this story is for the religious person? It's for the righteous person. It's for the person who's honorable and living as a good citizen, as a good neighbor. This, this story is a greater threat to us than it is to any sinner out there. It's a greater threat to us. Do we understand our sickness? And see, this is what Jesus was getting at. When he gave the Sermon on the Mount, he said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. Most of us could say, yeah, I haven't. I'm in good shape. 
But then he says, but I say to you, if you've looked at a woman lustfully, you've already committed adultery. Whoa, okay, I'm guilty. Now I say, I'm sick. I'm sick. I need help. <clears throat> he said, you've heard it say, don't commit murder. I haven't done that. Uh, but I say to you, if you're angry at your brother, you've committed murder. Oh, I'm sick. I need help. I'm in trouble. Uh, th that's why Jesus took that outward view of the law. And he said, no, 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 it's inside. You're not made pure by avoiding things. You're made pure by the gospel. And so the greatest threat is to us, the religious. Friends, the rich young ruler in Matthew 19, he comes to Jesus and he says, hey, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, keep the commands. He says, I've done that from my youth up. He goes, well, then give away everything you have and come follow me. And he leaves sad. He doesn't follow. Why? Because he doesn't think, he, no, I just, just tell me what to do. I'll do it. I don't want to do that because I've got some wealth. But he doesn't see it as inward. He sees it. <clears throat> Friends, we might need, you might be here today, you might need to repent of your religion. You might need to repent of your own self-perceived goodness that maybe you're not as sick as Levi. You know, C.S. Lewis writes, he says, prostitutes are in no danger of finding their present life so satisfactory that they cannot turn to God. The proud, the avaricious, the self-righteous are in that danger. We're in that. That's what he, Lewis was taking his line from the words of Jesus in Matthew 21 when he talked to the Pharisees. He says, I tell you the truth, the tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Why would that be true? Well, because they know their life is a dumpster fire. They know that they need help. But to those of us who are so cleaned up, we don't always see the same need. Friends, please, if you've been in the church your whole life and you haven't seen the stain of sin that needs to rip, he says, I've come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. We have to understand that we're sinners. See, many times in American Christianity, conversions are only taking a good life and making it a little sweeter, adding a spiritual dimension to it that kind of adds a more full round view of life. We don't see conversions anymore as, no, I, I'm a sinner, I need to be saved. I know this sounds like, ah, oh, this sounds like 50s preaching. It's not 50s, pre it's the preaching of the scriptures. I've come to call sinners to repentance. And to repent means to turn from your sin, not just to stop doing something. I'm thinking differently. Metanoia means that I'm, I'm changing the way I think about something. And, and I'm, I'm not just moving away from sin, I'm moving to God. I'm coming back to a father who loves me. Like the prodigal in the parable of the prodigal son, He's not going anywhere. He's going back to a father who loves him. And he, when he comes to his senses, have you come to your senses? We may need to repent of our religion. You know, why Martin Luther, the great reformer, wrote a catechism, a Christian education for young children. And he, he put in the Ten Commandments, and then he put the gospel in. Why did he do it in that order? He, he wanted the children to learn the Ten Commandments. You can't do any of these. That's why you need the gospel. Instead of going right to the, to the cake, hey, here's the gospel, he helps them see their need for the gospel. Do you see your need? That's what he's driving at here. <clears throat> and folks, let me remind you, if you're a Christian here, you still need. Ryle again has a comment for us. He says, sinners 
We are in the day that we first come to Christ. Poor, needy sinners. We continue to be as long as we live. Drawing all the grace we have every hour out of Christ's fullness. Sinners we find ourselves in the hour of our death. And we shall die as much indebted to Christ's blood as in the day we first believed. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you need his blood? On the final day, like you did on the first day. You do. And this is what will keep us from slipping into a pharisaical behavior. And this will help us to begin to not see people in classes of black and white or educated, uneducated, or godly or ungodly. We see everybody with one class now. We're all sinners. We see them the same way. And what this is going to do is it's going to help us move towards Inviting our friends who don't know. We're not going to see them as different. We're not going to shy back away from going to parties where they, I, I, I want to be sensitive here to some of us are easily tempted into sin and we want to be aware of that and cautious. But friends, many of us avoid developing friendships with people that sin in grand ways and they don't care. And we avoid certain situations because people may think differently of me if I'm seen there. May I say we need greater courage? That, that may I say that your purity won't come by your avoidance? Your purity will come from this gospel day and tomorrow and the next day and on the last hour of your life. You'll need the gospel to make you pure. Not by how you change it. Can we have the courage to move towards those in our family and friends and can we be like Levi and invite these friends into our life that we can share bread with them, but also tell them about the greatness of Christ and what he's done for me? I mean, it really is, it's an incredible word to the sinner here that you can't feel forgiven. Come today by faith. And it's an incredible word to the religious that we need his blood every day the same way, just like we did the first day, and that we don't need to, to create these Christian subcultures, enclaves, and, and kind of hold ourselves up. And what we're doing is we're keeping the gospel to ourselves, and they're not hearing it. Who are they going to hear it from? It has to be from us. So it's a word for both the one who needs Christ and the one who has Christ. The kingdom of God is for sinners. The kingdom of God is a call to follow. Are you following him? And how would I know that? Uh, the kingdom of God is a point of rejoicing. Let us be a people of great joy. Joy in what we have in Christ. We've been brought into a new kingdom, a new world. And it challenges a lot of our views. Friends, let's just take a minute and ask God, ask him for the spirit to press it into your soul. That it just wouldn't be instruction to you, but it would be transforming to all of us. And if you don't have a concern for those that you don't, that don't know that you're a then pray to have a concern that they might know the same Savior that you know. And then I'll pray for us in just a minute.